Have you ever felt the hand of God? Also, kind of a weird thing, it's an odd, odd thing, um, unless you've experienced it. Um, it, it, is, it is really strange. <laughs> And, and really the only way to talk about it or like is after the fact, like in the middle of it, it just is, it's, it's crazy. It's a very real and very powerful moment. And, and it, so it's it, it just like when you're in the midst of it, like there's nothing else that you can think about. It's just all encompassing in that moment. There've been a few times in my life where I feel like I've experienced this. Um, there have been times in my life where there was sin present and it felt like God's hand was on me and just like literally brought me to my knees. But it, it's odd because it's not in like a shame or guilt kind of way. It, it really is like the overwhelming feeling of his presence. It crushes you and and it covers you. It's like this odd, paradoxical kind of thing. Like you are completely aware of your unworthiness in the moment, and and you're like I like I should be like I should be crushed. I should just like this is just overwhelming. And and yet and yet you have this kind of real sense of peace. It's really unexplainable. There have also been times in my life where I felt like God's hand was on me in, in a way that I felt like I was the only person in the world and that his love was just being poured out on me. You know, like when you get a fresh stack of pancakes and you pour the Aunt Jemima over it and it just covers it. Oh, it's just, that's a good moment right there. And that's like just, that's just what it feels like. It's like you're just covered. And there, there really are two major times in our lives where we experience this concept that the Bible calls the hand of God. And the first time, and, and probably the one that is used more than any other time in, in Bible, uh, in the Bible is where there's discipline in, involved. And so we experience the hand of God in discipline. This is what King David experienced in 2 Samuel 24. It's, this, uh, it's the overwhelming use of the term. So the, the term, the hand of God, is most often used where there's some kind of discipline going on, and it represents kind of the physical, it's the physical representation of God's anger, not against the individual, really, but against the sin. And, and it's signifying God's discipline. Like you knew you shouldn't have done this and you did it, and so you've got to deal, we've got to deal with it. Um, I, I heard this really interesting thing the, the other day. Like we often, like the, the world's view of God and, and, and the capital C God, it comes really from the world's view of the lowercase c God, right? So if you worship kind of a, a pantheon of God, if you're polytheistic, there's lots of different gods, you have a different way of viewing God than if you are in a monotheistic society where there's just one God. If there's lots of gods, like you gotta appease the right one and you're back and forth and they war against each other and this is really kind of weird thing. And so we recognize discipline like an angry parent 
who has allowed that anger to kind of overtake them. And so they're, they're disciplining the child. They're like punishing the child. But God's discipline is not like that. When the Bible talks about God's discipline, it's God's desire to remove this thing that is bad for you from your life. And, and so God's discipline is always to benefit you, not to punish you. It's an interesting twist here. So when the Bible talks about the hand of God being on you, it's most often used in this idea of discipline where God is trying to teach you, look, this path you're on is gonna lead you to a bad place. And so I wanna get you on a better path. The other way that this term is used is in provision. And this is where God's hand is on someone in a way of blessing. And, and it feels just like, like God loves me more than anybody else in this moment. This is how moms feel today, right? No, I'm sorry. We're not very good at that. This is how moms should feel today. Like I'm just loved more than anybody else and like God's just smiling down on me. There are some examples of this in scripture in 1 Chronicles 28 and in Job 12. There's this idea that God's hand is on someone in a way where there's provision, there's blessing and it's just kind of overflowing in their life. And so um, it's interesting as I kind of looked at this, there's a reason we're talking about this. We're in the book of Ezekiel and, and this, this term just kept popping up in Ezekiel. And so I, I did a quick study. I'm like, well, where else does this term show up and in what ways does it show up? Because it's used in Ezekiel over and over and over again. In fact, it's used in Ezekiel more than any other time in any other book of the Bible. Like this term, the hand of the Lord, is used 36 times in scripture, and seven of those times, more than any other book, it's used when speaking of Ezekiel. So last week, we learned that our role as followers of Jesus is not to correct culture, and it's not to condemn culture or the culture around us. It really is to offer a contrasting view of culture in our, uh, or the way of culture in our lives, so offer a viable contrast to the culture or the way that culture lives around us. But before we do that, before we can get to this place where we're offering this contrast to the world in a viable way, we have to have a new heart. And so Ezekiel is going to say it this way. He's going to say, we need God to take our heart of stone and give to us a heart of flesh. God's got to be involved in this process. He's gotta take this bad heart away and he's gotta give us a good heart so that we can be open to the things of God and we can have eyes that see the way God sees. And so in this series, we're looking at the prophet Ezekiel's experience with God while the nation of Israel is in exile in Babylon. So uh, Israel moves into the promised land. Uh, they go through the desert, 40 years in the desert. They move into the promised land and everything is really good for a really short time. And then Israel just kind of starts going downhill. And ultimately the nation of Israel is broken up into two parts, the Northern tribe of Israel, the Southern tribes of Judah. And, and it's, this, it's this huge upheaval. And, and people, instead of following God and, and, and sharing God with the rest of the world, they're fighting among each other. They're, they start worshiping the gods of the nations around them. Like it's a, 
complete destruction of what God had intended it to be. And so the people's stubborn refusal to follow God and to walk in his ways results in their capture and exile because God's chosen people chose other gods besides him. And and so even while Israel endured this discipline from God, God was working on their deliverance. The 70 years while they were in exile, God is working through guys like Ezekiel and Daniel and back in Jerusalem through guys like Jeremiah to bring the people back to God, to focus their attention back on him, to get them back into this functioning covenant relationship with God himself. And so God was using um, guys like Ezekiel to bring the nation to this place of repentance and restoration. So last week, we took a look at Ezekiel, just a peek at the introduction. I think it was just two verses, really, that we looked at, verse three and four in chapter one, where God introduces himself to this guy, Ezekiel, while Zeke is um, sitting by this canal in kind of close to a Jewish settlement outside of Babylon in the Kibar Canal. So you can read that story. If you want to catch up, you can read that in Ezekiel chapter one. In that chapter, God gets a hold of Ezekiel, like he calls him out, he knows exactly where Ezekiel is, and Ezekiel has this vision in chapter one, and then it kind of carries on into chapter two a little bit. Zeke is just sitting there on the Kibar Canal, he's minding his own business, whatever is happening, and, and then he sees this vision of the chariot of God and it's coming in the clouds. And, and he explains it in chapter one, and it's mind-blowing, like it's hard to picture, it's hard to understand what Zeke is saying about what he's seeing. He's trying to convey it in words that we can understand, and it's still difficult to understand. How would you explain what it looks like when the God of the universe comes to you in his chariot and it's kind of the throne, the mobile throne of, of God. It's like, it's, it's unimaginable. You just can't explain it. And so Zeke does the best job that he can. And, and here's what he says then in Luke chapter, or, or in uh, Ezekiel chapter one. He sees this big chariot and all this does, he goes through this explanation. And then he says this, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And it's really interesting, this phrase, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, it's used over and over in the Old Testament when God shows up. And they never say, this was what God looked like. They say, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. Why, why would they say that? They would say it because God is unexplainable. You, you, you can't put it into words what you're seeing. And so they're trying to say, look, this is kind of like this incredible thing that I can't explain to you. And, and so all I can say is this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory that is present when God shows up. That's kind of what they're saying here. And it was so overwhelming to Ezekiel that he says when he saw it, he fell on his face. So overwhelming that he sees this incredible vision and the only thing he can do is just get down on his hands and knees and bury his face in, in the dirt. It's so amazing. 
And so here in chapter one, what happens is Zeke gets this full-on view of God's chariot, his throne, this crazy, amazing picture. And, and it's hard to just kind of wrap our heads around even the little bit that Ezekiel is trying to explain to us. It's just like so out of this world. And, and so when Zeke sees this, incredible image, the only thing he can do is just fall down on his face because it's so awesome. And so here's what we've got to see first when we look at Ezekiel and what's going on in this text. God will always get your attention or seek your attention before he seeks your assistance. So if God wants to use you in a way, if he wants you to partner with him to accomplish his goals, he's got to first get your attention. He's got to make sure that you understand who he is, or we might say it this way, who you're working for. He wants you to know what's going on before it happens. We see this play out in um, Genesis. God creates Adam from the dust of the earth, and what's the first thing he does with him? He places him in this garden, and then he recreates creation in front of Adam so Adam can see What's going on? So God gets Adam's attention. God just doesn't say, hey, I'm God and I created you and now you follow me. He says, Adam, look at what I'm capable of doing. I'm gonna get your attention. And now, then God seeks Adam's assistance in caretaking the garden and, and the world. It's this beautiful picture. So God's always gonna seek your attention before he seeks your assistance. And so Ezekiel and all of Israel, they're in Babylon and they feel like God has just abandoned them. There's probably been a a time in your life, hopefully it wasn't a very long time, where you felt like God had just abandoned you. Like you're praying to him, you're seeking him, you're like, what's going on? Like this is not how I thought this was supposed to be. I thought it was supposed to be better. God, where are you? Why aren't you at work? I'm praying to you and you're not responding and you feel like kind of God's abandoned you. And just think about how Israel felt. Their God was the God and yet he allowed them to be captured by this pagan nation because in their mind, he refused to fight for them. And so that's what they think. They, they, don't, they don't look like we have a problem with looking at ourselves, right? And going, I screwed up, I blew it, and now this is the consequence. We wanna go, no, there's a reason. And so the people are kind of blaming God for this. They're so far away from their home. They're so far away from God. And, and, and so Zeke is kind of sitting on the canal and he's lamenting the situation when God begins to reveal himself in a way that helps Ezekiel realize two very important things. First, God has not forgotten his people. Even though they forgot about him, God has not forgotten them. That's what the vision is about, or at least in part what it's about that Ezekiel sees. And the second thing is that since the people can't get to God in Jerusalem, God is gonna come to them. This was a huge revelation for 
Ezekiel. And so Ezekiel now, he's going to assist God in his plan to realign the hearts of the people and give them hope. Like you're in exile. This is part of your discipline. You chose other gods. This is what's going to happen. But I'm not going to abandon you here. I'm going to be here with you. I'm going to go through this with you. And so he wants to realign their hearts, wants to give them hope in this moment. And so God has to get Ezekiel's attention, and he does that in chapter one. Ezekiel has to learn some things about God before God can use him to share things with his people. That, that's the way God works. Like if you're a parent, God wants to get a hold of your heart so that through you, he can get a hold of your child's heart. If you're a friend, God wants to get your attention so that you can assist him in getting the attention of your, your friends. This is how God works. And so when God is going to use a person to call a people, God first has to get that person's attention. Because God doesn't want people to follow you. He wants people to follow him through you. This is not about being popular. It's not about people going, oh, you're so great. It's about people seeing God. When Moses goes to Pharaoh in the beginning of the Exodus story, what does God say he wants to happen? God says, through this exchange between Moses and Pharaoh and Israel and Egypt, he says, the goal of this is that Egypt and Pharaoh will see me, not Moses. They're not gonna go, Moses is great. They're not gonna go, Israel is great. The people of Egypt are gonna go, God is great. God is the one true God. So God always wants people to see him through us. It's not about self-help. We need the Spirit's help involved in our lives. It's not about me, it's about Him. And so that's what God is working on. That's the direction that He's going. And so the reason we talk about looking more like Jesus here at real life is, is because that's who people need to see. Not us, but Him. And, and so the, the reality is, like for me personally, like I'm a screw up. I say the wrong thing, I do the wrong thing, like just stick around here for a while, I'm an equal opportunity offender, I'm gonna say something that's gonna offend you, and I don't mean to do it, like that's not, I don't intend to like make people uncomfortable and stuff, like Sheila, our conversation in the kitchen this morning, sorry about that. Uh, like I don't intend, like it's like things, this is, this is, you just feel sorry for my wife. Things just pop into my head and I'm like, <laughs> that's funny. And then it comes out of my mouth and I go, oh, that wasn't very funny. Um, it's, I, let me just tell you, I'm hilarious up here. Everything I say is funny and you laugh and it's great. And, and so I, I don't know, this, this, it's my mom's fault. She laughed at my jokes and I thought I was funny. And so that's... Uh, the, the, but like, I'm a screw up. Like I mess up, I blow it, we fall, we fail, we're not perfect people. And so people need to see God because he doesn't fail and he doesn't fall and he doesn't screw up and he's always right. And we gotta, like it's not about us, it's about God. And so God has to get our attention before he uses our assistance in bringing other people along. And so in chapter one of Ezekiel, that's exactly what God does. He gets Zeke's attention. 
But see if you can find out uh, or you can see what happens in chapter three. Something interesting happens. There's a shift. So in chapter three, Ezekiel says this, then the spirit lifted me up. I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its, its place. And there's a really cool thing about this phrase here, but we won't get into it. Um, so I highlighted it for you so it'd be easier for you to, to figure out. When, um, when God shows up in chapter one and Ezekiel has this experience where he sees the, the throne chariot of, of God being, being carried from Jerusalem into Babylon, he like sees this full on. He has this full vision. It's like the sky's ripped apart. It's this really overwhelming thing. And, and, and Zeke is so stunned by it that he, that he falls down. He bows down to the ground. He buries his face in the ground towards this vision that he's seeing coming from the West. In chapter three, Zeke says, not that God came to me. He didn't see it. He says, the, I heard it behind me. And so God goes from being in front of, of Zeke or confronting Zeke. Now he is behind him. God's presence is behind Ezekiel as Ezekiel looks forward. And, and I'm, I'm like, why? That's an odd thing. Why did that change take place? And, and I think I've come to, to maybe a, a reason. I think it's not out of the question. I, I think it fits the story. I think God got Zeke attention in chapter one. He shows himself to, to Ezekiel and Ezekiel sees it and he's like, wow, this is amazing. Now God is seeking Ezekiel's attention or, or, or uh, assistance. And so Ezekiel sees God, and now God needs Ezekiel to see what's going on with the people. And so it, it's kind of like a parent who gets a child's attention and has a conversation and then turns the child around and gets down and goes, okay, now look, this is what I want you to see. This is what we were talking about. This is like God, he's now behind Ezekiel and he's going to Ezekiel, I need you to open your eyes. I need you to see what's going on with the people. And so like, this is God's MO. This is the way he operates. God calls a person and then through that person, God calls a people over and over and over again in scripture. This is the way it works. And, and in the Old Testament, these mediators between men and God were called priests or prophets. They were the ones who represented man to God and represented God to man. They were kind of the intermediaries here. And, and I want you to hold on to this idea that the people that, that represented the, the go-betweens between God and humanity in the Old Testament were called priests primarily. Hold on to that because we're going to come back to it um, at the end. But I want to look at a couple other verses in chapter three. Ezekiel goes on to say, the spirit lifted me up, took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit. Um, I just think like, like he's hot under the collar, like this, like this, he's worked up in this moment. He says, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. So here's the second time we've heard that phrase. I came to the exiles at um, uh, bees in the Hebrew are vives, so it's Tel Aviv. It's not the Tel Aviv we know of today. That city got its name from here. It's different. 
Um, But he came to these Jews who were dwelling in a refugee camp by the Kibar Canal, and he sat where they were dwelling, and he says, I sat there overwhelmed among them for seven days. So God supernaturally somehow picks Ezekiel up and he sets him down in the middle of this refugee camp on the outskirts of Babylon next to the Kibar Canal and he says, I want you to observe what's going on. And so I go, why why was Ezekiel bitter in the heat of his spirit? The hand of the Lord is on him, but why is he bitter about this? What's going on here? Why is he overwhelmed by what he's seeing over these seven days? Well, I think in order to understand that, you gotta look at the verses that precede it in chapter three, because I think they really give us a clue as to why Ezekiel's worked up in this moment. So Ezekiel got, God got Ezekiel's attention in, in chapter one, and then God says, uh, Ezekiel, I want your assistance. I need your help. I've got to get my people to understand something, and so you need to understand it so that you can then help them understand it. I need you to help get their attention the way I got your attention, only you need to understand going in that they are not going to listen to you any better than they have listened to me. So imagine God kind of saying, coming to you and saying that today. Look, I want you to go to these people who are rebellious. They don't pay attention. They don't listen. And you're going to give them a message from me to them. But they are not going to listen to you either. And, and my response to that is, why bother? Why? If they're not listening to you, they certainly aren't going to listen to me What's the point of this? This doesn't make any sense. And so you read in the beginning of of chapter three and you're like, no wonder Zeke is a little worked up about this. He's like, God, you're sending me on an impossible quest. There is no way that they're gonna change their heart or change their mind and you're telling me I gotta go talk to these people who are not going to listen and you're telling me this in the beginning. I I don't understand. I I would be a little upset about that uh, as well. Then Zeke says he's, over, he's overwhelmed as he sits among them seven days. Well, in, in the scripture, seven is important. The word seven means whatever it is they're talking about. When seven comes in, it means it's complete. It's, it's finished. So God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. His work was complete in his rest. And so whenever seven comes up in the Bible, you just think whatever's going on, it's complete. And so Ezekiel had to sit there among those refugees until his understanding was complete. That's what seven days represents there. But why is he overwhelmed? I think it's because he sits down in the middle of this refugee camp and he witnesses the hard hearts of his own people firsthand. I think he's finally in this place because God has got his attention that he's looking at the rest of Israel the way God looks at Israel. He's seeing them the way God sees them and what's going on, the way they're interacting with each other. And, and, and he's overwhelmed because he's like, we're, like we're lost. They're never gonna listen to me. Look at all the stuff that is going on, all the crazy things that they're doing. 
And so God explains Ezekiel's role. Then he gives him a firsthand look at the sin and the corruption among his own people so that Ezekiel begins to feel the pain of God at the sinfulness of his people. Ezekiel's getting a little picture of the pain that is caused to God by what's going on among his people. Remember, these, these are supposed to be priests. These are supposed to be people who represent God to the rest of the world, and yet they're acting like the rest of the world. They've totally let go of everything that God had called them to. And, and then God tells Zeke more specifically how he's going um, to use him. And, and it comes up um, in, the, in the next thing, in Ezekiel chapter three, verses 18 to 21. I'm not gonna read it because it's a lot of stuff. Let me just, uh, let me sum up for you uh, what's going on here. So um, God gets Zeke's attention and then he places him in this camp and lets Ezekiel see for himself the sin and the corruption that's going on. He experiences what God, a little bit of what God experiences. And then God begins to unveil to Ezekiel a little bit more of his plan. Zeke, here's what I want you to do. And so God tells Ezekiel to speak to the wicked in, in these verses. He says, speak to the wicked about their sin and warn them that because of their sin, there's gonna be discipline and that discipline is gonna end in their death unless they change their ways. It's kind of like this. He says, Ezekiel, speak to the wicked after they have sinned. They've already done things they shouldn't do and they need to be warned that if they continue to do things they shouldn't do, there's gonna be punishment, there's gonna be death, there's gonna be discipline. Here. It's like this is not, if you continue on this path, it's not going to end well for you. And then God says, Ezekiel, on the other side of this coin, I want you to speak to the righteous people. I want you to speak to righteous people, and I want you to tell them that if they turn from their righteousness and they begin to sin, their righteousness isn't going to save them. If you turn from your righteousness and you begin to sin, there's gonna be discipline and that discipline, if you don't change your ways, is gonna end in your death. Like either way, this is not good for you. And so he tells Ezekiel to speak to the righteous ahead of their sin, not after they have sinned, but ahead of their sin to warn them to turn away from that. That, that look, your, your righteous acts in the past aren't gonna save you in the future. And so um, here's how it kind of breaks down. If the wicked person refuses to listen to what Ezekiel says from God, and, and because of that word to repent, then they're going to die. But God says, Ezekiel, you've done your duty. You told them this is what's gonna happen, and if they continue on the path, like their choice is their choice, and it's, it's not on you anymore. And if the righteous person refrains from committing wickedness, so if you go to the righteous person and say, hey, you need to keep doing the right things, that's what righteousness means, it means right, wise, living, keep doing the right things. And so if the righteous person refrains from committing wickedness, then they will live. And Zeke will have done his duty and he'll be guiltless because he shared with them what's gonna happen if you turn away from this. So it's like two sides of this same coin here. And the expectation seems to be that the wicked people are going to refuse to listen to what Ezekiel says. They're gonna continue in their wickedness, even though a few of them might repent 
and, and they'll change their ways and, and God will rescue them. And it also seems to, to be um, that the righteous person will continue to do righteous things, although some people will not pay attention to Ezekiel, they'll turn to wickedness, and then again, their choice is on their own head. The point is, Ezekiel is only responsible for the delivery. He isn't responsible for what the people do. God says, look, you have a job. You gotta tell the wicked that if they continue on their path, it's gonna be bad for them. And you need to warn the righteous that if they turn from this path, it's gonna be bad for them. But all you're responsible for is delivering that message. What the people do with that message is up to them. I have a very similar role. I have to tell you to the best of my ability what I believe God's word says about what's right, about what's wrong, about how we live, about how we interact with the world, about what God expects of us in that relationship with him. And then you have to choose what you're going to do. You may listen, you may not listen. But as long as I've delivered the message, I've done what God's told me to do. Now this is difficult, I'll just tell you. This is difficult because sometimes uh, the delivery doesn't land. Why? Because the culture is different than Christianity. And so there's times when I'm like, hey, th this is what the Bible calls sin. And, and in the culture we go, wait a minute, I don't like that. I go, I'm sorry, <laughs> I don't make the rules. I'm just delivering the message. You get to choose how you're gonna live and what you're gonna do with that um, information. So Ezekiel is responsible for the delivery. Um, if we're going to offer a viable contrast to the culture, first, we have to be overwhelmed by the culture's condition. Meaning we have to recognize that the way the culture is living doesn't line up with God's word. That there's a difference there. And, 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 and there's a difference there. And sometimes that's difficult because the way the culture words things makes us feel like if we don't agree with that, then we, don't, then we hate people. <laughs> and we go, no, no. This, I, there's love here. I want the best for you. That's why I'm telling you, like Ezekiel was supposed to do, if you continue on this path, this is where it's gonna end up. And I don't want you to end up in that place. So this is a difficult um, kind of situation. If we don't recognize wickedness, why would we warn the wicked or the righteous? Why would we say anything at all to anybody? If we don't recognize that there's sin and wickedness and evil in the world, there's no reason for us to say anything to anyone. And then I have to go, why is this important to us anyway? I told you earlier that we were gonna come back to this idea of being a priest. In chapter one, we find out that Ezekiel is a priest and that's exactly what you and I are. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a priest. In Exodus chapter 19, God tells the nation of Israel 
that his goal for them is that they would be a nation or a kingdom of priests. Not just a handful, not just the Aaron, the line of Aaron that'll be the priest to God for Israel. He says, Israel, I want you as an entire nation to be priests, to represent or be intermediaries between the rest of humanity, people who are not of the nation of Israel, and me. This is what my plan is for you. In the book of Revelation, we're told that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross ransomed us for God from every tribe and language and tongue and people and nation. And the result of that ransom is that he made us a kingdom of priests to God. Okay, let's put it modern day terms. Because <laughs> everybody thinks it's the preacher's job to tell people about Jesus. But scripture clearly says that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a priest, you're part of this kingdom of priests. And what does a priest do? You don't have to be a Christian to know what a priest does. A priest represents God to people and people to God. A priest is the guy who's in the middle. He's warning people who are committing wickedness, hey, if you continue on this road, it's gonna be bad. And, and then he's warning righteous people going, hey, if you leave this path, it's going to be bad. Keep doing good. And over here he's going, turn from this and do good. Like we're trying to get everybody on the same page and going the same directions. And so as priests of God, what do we do? Well, first we've got to get to the point in our lives um, where this happens. Wickedness has to wreck us. Wickedness of, of the world, evil in the world, it has to wreck us. That's what Ezekiel was seeing when he saw God. When he came into the presence of God, he was overcome, I think, when you look at rest of scripture, by his own sinfulness. So we gotta get to the point where wickedness in the world wrecks us enough that we're willing to warn people. We're willing to go, hey, there's another way to live. And if you continue on the path that you're continuing on, it's gonna be bad for you, but, but there's a better way. And not just a better way, this is not just about saving people from hell. This is going, look, there's a better way to live where you can have joy and you can have peace that passes the understanding of the crap that's going on in your life. You can live this better life and I want that for you. I want you to experience that. We've got to be willing to warn people if they're on that path, either ahead of their sin, like, hey, before you go down this path, you need to know that this is where it's going to lead you, or you've already gone down this path and you need to turn around. But the wickedness of the world has to wreck us. Secondly, we've got to be willing to let the hand of God be heavy on us either for discipline in our own lives where we come face to face with our own sin or for direction where God's going, look, I wanna bless you so that you can be a help to other people. And, and so my encouragement is like, don't run from that. If God's hand is on you, don't run from it. Don't try to lessen it, experience what's going on because God is trying to get your attention so that he can then get your assistance. God's got something for you to do, and he wants you to be in a place to be able to do it. Um, look, if the spiritual condition of the world doesn't concern us, 
as followers of Jesus, then there's no reason for us to continue as followers of Jesus. There's no reason for us to come here and get together and sing songs and be happy with each other if the spiritual condition of the world doesn't concern us. Because we're told, number one, we're to love God and we're to love others. And the way that we love God is by loving others. And so if the condition of the world outside the doors of this or any church doesn't concern us, then we're not loving others, we're not loving God, and there's no reason for us to be here. There's no need for us to be priests if we don't see wickedness as a problem. One more thing I wanna share and then we'll be done with this. God makes this command to Ezekiel to speak. He says, I want you to speak and I want you to warn the wicked and the righteous. But if you read down in chapter three and get down to verse 26, there's this really interesting thing that happens. God says, Ezekiel, I'm gonna put you in this house and there's gonna be cords, bands that come and wrap around you and I'm gonna close your mouth. Um, and it's really weird because God spends all this time in chapters one, two, and three, uh, beginning of three, going, look, Ezekiel, I want you to speak for me, speak for me, speak for me, speak for me. And then he goes, shut up. <laughs> don't say anything. Close your mouth. I don't want you to say a word. And then he says this really interesting thing. I want you to be quiet until I speak to you, and then you speak to them. Here's what I think God is telling us. Too many Christians, I think, take it upon themselves to determine when to speak. And so we become really, really good at pointing out the evil and the wickedness in other people's lives. You need to turn, you need to change, you need to do this. You need to look more like me instead of, hey, you need to look more like Jesus. There's away here. So we get in the way and we've got to learn like Ezekiel needed to learn that we do better if we listen to God first to speak to us before we then speak to others. We don't just jump into that. We got to let God speak. Here's the way the New Testament puts it. Take the plank out of your eye before you try to help somebody else with the speck in theirs. Wait on God to speak to you, and then you speak to others. Wait for God to get your attention so that you can be the best assistant to Him that you can. Let's pray. God, thanks for loving us. And again, thank you for allowing us to partner with you in this call to help every person possible find real life in Jesus and look more like Him every day. God, we confess as followers of yours that oftentimes we've decided that we're right and everybody else is wrong. And so we're willing to tell them that at every opportunity. And yet the story of Ezekiel warns us that, that look, there's a process of getting a new heart. And, and too often we keep our heart of stone and then we throw those stones at other people telling them they need a new or a different heart. The people of Israel, Ezekiel himself, had to recognize that you gotta take our heart of stone first and replace it. And then once we have a heart that beats like your heart, 
then we can begin to love others. We can begin to warn them both of what's going to happen if they continue on the path or if they get off the path. And so, Father, just help us to be aware of the way that you're working in our lives first so that then we can be best prepared to help you work in the lives of other people. Thank you for the way that you've worked this and the way that you're always working in our lives. Help us to follow you first. In Jesus' name.